0: Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday morning worship service of the Heartland Church of the Nazarene. We're a community of faith learning to love God and our neighbors as ourselves. Welcome home. Today's sermon text is from Revelation 2, 12-17. The passage will be on the screen for you, or if you like, please turn to Revelation in your Bible. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name, and you do not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. uh, Repent then. (laughs) If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it.
1: This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I welcome you to church today. Um glad we get to, to gather together. Uh, and to, to continue to read uh, and study the, the book of Revelation, uh, we are on the third church. So in the beginning, uh, Revelation starts with John kind of seeing this vision in the heavenly throne room, and he sees Jesus. Uh, and, and Jesus tells him to, to write these seven letters to, to seven churches in, uh, in the area. And so I have been lax with a map, in case you're wondering, these are, the, these are the seven churches, and where they are, that's modern day Turkey, and if you were to go straight across, there would be Greece over that way, and then if you go down that way, it's uh, Israel and, and all that. So these are, these are the seven churches, and, and we've already done um, Ephesus, which is right there in the bottom left, and then Smyrna, and we're, we're going to go Pergamum, which is up there at the, at the, at the top. Um we're going to end up though coming kind of down that way and uh, looking at all of these letters uh, Each letter is a little different, but each each starts um, with God saying uh, greetings from the one who and he kind of uses some different images that that help the the people in this church understand and know who who he is uh, and he'll then then say some good things, right um, for the church in ephesus they were well, they were they were smart and they were pure. Uh, they had understood what it is that God had told them, um, and, and they had all of their all of their theological letters, uh, t's dotted and eyes crossed and t's dotted. Yes, I have it written down here. Right, it's right. Okay, they, uh, the irony of that is is striking me significantly at the moment. <laughs> <sighs> oh, yes. Yes. Uh, it, was, it was more because I knew she was going to correct my grammar. Uh, <laughs> she does often. Uh, well, they, they had all of their ducks in a row. They knew what they believed, and they, they were going to make sure that no, no unpure teaching was going to come their way. And, and Jesus was saying, hey, you guys are doing good. You have kept yourself pure. But... You have lost your first love. Uh, you've forgotten why you have these beliefs in the first place. You've forgotten the reason uh, for these beliefs. That it's to keep you good and pure and safe, yes, but it's also so that you might love the world around you and bring them into your communion and, and into relationship with Christ. Legalism, that's what they're, they're doing. It's rules without love. Rules without love. And uh, Jesus is pretty, pretty stark at the end. He's like, if you don't remember your first love, you're going to have your lampstand, which, which kind of represented the church, taken away. Uh, and, and this isn't us, generally, um, but it's a good reminder that, that we need to have right belief. We need to believe right. But if we do not, if we do not love, uh, we're in danger. Uh, the church in Smyrna receives a different message from those in Ephesa, Ephesus. And uh, these guys, they were faithful in everything. Uh, they had believed what they should believe, but they also had, well, they had refused to do the things that uh, the world around them thought that they should do. They refused to participate in, in idol worship and, uh, and, and several things, and it had cost them dearly. Uh, they had been so faithful. Uh, we said that the book of Revelation is, is really a letter of, of hope. A lot of people think it's a book of judgment, and there's some of that in there. We'll see that today and in a couple of weeks. Uh, but it's a it's a book of hope written to people who are already in the midst of struggle and persecution and and strife, and it's saying ultimately, uh, the second death will not get you. Our, our hope is that Christ is coming back again to undo all that is wrong and is broken in our world. So the church in Smyrna could believe and could be faithful because they had confident hope that the God who created them was going to sustain them even as he was sustaining them here and now. Well, this week we, uh, we travel, travel to Pergamum, uh, Pergamum and we're, we'll go back there. Um, And Pergamum wasn't as an important city as either Ephesus or Smyrna, Um, but it was, it was the first city in the eastern province to to have a a temple dedicated to the emperor, worshiping the emperor. Uh, It was also the kind of the seat of Roman power in the eastern part of the, the empire, It was a place that you might get sent if you had committed some crimes and they wanted to to judge you or exile you or execute you. Um, And and so the city of uh, Pergamum could, well, they could pronounce judgment on everyone around them. Uh, They were a place of, uh, uh, they had a throne, really. It wasn't the emperor's throne, but it was a throne of of power where they could, well, they had the ability to, to take people's lives and and hand down judgment in the name of the emperor. Well, um, Jesus begins his letter. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, I know that you are living where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan lives. We'll go back here, the two-edged sword. Now, um, we, if we go back to the beginning of the book, we see this image that John uh, is seeing, and, and one of the things that we see is that there's a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, right? Uh, and, and Christian tradition has long time understood that the that sword represents the, the word of God. It is God's creative word. Remember, all the way back to, to Genesis, God created by doing what? He spoke it into existence. In the beginning, God created, and it was, it was so, it was good. Uh, but it's also kind of uh, this, this judging thing that, that, that uh, gets deep down inside. You can see the heart of people and, and, and their true intentions and their, their true beliefs uh, Is God's word. Oh, we want to make a distinction sometimes between God's word as, as what God does in the world, his creative power, and the word that is our our Bible. Uh, they're, they're similar. Um, uh, but he's saying, I am I am the one who has the sword. And uh, I think a couple things are happening here with this in particular thing. First, uh, it is the fact that, that Uh, Jesus, instead of the Romans, instead of the leaders in Pergamum, has the ultimate authority to judge between those who are good and those who are bad. Uh, That that whereas Pergamum was used to handing out judgment on behalf of the Roman Empire and often bearing the sword on Rome's behalf, Jesus reminds us uh, who has the true power. Uh, It is the power of God's creativeness. Uh, The fact that we see the image coming out of of Jesus' mouth, I think, uh, makes us understand that the, the way that Jesus exercises power and authority and judgment is not the same way as the Roman Empire does. Whereas the Roman Empire wages war and kills, the power of God is self-giving, and forgiveness. The power of God is victory over death itself. Instead of causing death, it resurrects. He's reminding the people in Pergamum, I am the true power. I am the one. Uh, so they're getting this, this image, being reminded of that. Uh, in verse 13, uh, 15, or thirteen. That's thirteen. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is, and and again, that's uh, quite quite literally where Satan's throne is. Now we have said that uh, we have said that that he's the word they're using right here is is literally translated adversary. Now, adversary is someone who works against you, and so I think I think. Yes, Jesus may be talking about the spiritual forces of evil in the world, and I think those spiritual forces of evil are manifested in Rome and its, and its representatives. They live among the powers of darkness in our world. He's saying, but, but you have been faithful. Uh, I know Satan's throne is there. Satan is among you, and yet you are holding fast to my name. And you do not deny faith in me, even in the days of Antipas. Now, we don't know who Antipas is. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, we don't know what he did. We don't know how he died. We don't know what, what the Romans did to him. Uh, likely, someone turned him in, right? So this guy, uh, he doesn't engage in any of the idol worship. He's not, well, he's a subversive, and you should, you should get rid of him a lot of times you would be brought in and the Romans would give you an opportunity to, to recant, to deny the faith that you had and probably just maybe beat you up a little bit and then let you go. But if you didn't, that's when, that's when it went bad. When you didn't recant, when you said, yes, I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Caesar is not. Well, then they killed you. And so all that we really need to know about is about Antipas is that he is faithful and true, that he gave his life uh, in the midst of proclaiming that, that God is the one who is the true power in this world. Well, uh, we don't dwell very long on the good things that Jesus is saying to the people in Pergamum. Here comes the But but I have a few things against you. You have some, that, uh, some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put the stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice fornication. Um, I don't want us to get up uh, too hung up on the particular sins that he's me- mentioning. Like, like these are the only things that they, they might have dealt with. Um, if you were to go back to Numbers, the Book of Numbers, which I know you all read every night devotionally, uh, it's just thrilling. Well, there's this story about um, this false prophet. His name was, was Balaam, and and uh, a foreign king wanted him to uh, to to prophesy bad things about God's people. And so he's on his way to do this, and there's this really strange episode. Where he's riding this donkey, and this donkey keeps like running him into the wall. And then, like, he starts beating the donkey, and then the donkey talks to him. I swear, it's in the Bible. So snakes talk in the Bible, and so do donkeys. Do any of you have donkeys? Horses? Do they talk? No? Okay. Didn't think so. They wish they did? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's it's a wild story, but what ends up happening uh, through the whole thing is is that Balaam becomes, he becomes a symbol for Israel of, of a teacher who ends up leading God's people astray. He ends up saying, you can still be faithful to God and do this. You can still call yourselves the children of God and marry these foreign wives who will entice you to, to, to worship other gods. Uh, Really, Balaam became a symbol for allowing people to, well, to give in and to accommodate. Uh, Say, ah, we can have it, we can have it both, both ways. Uh, See, what I think, what I think is happening here, I think this is the opposite of Ephesus, right? Ephesus was, they were pure, and they were good, and they were right, uh, and they had all the rules, and they didn't do anything wrong. Um, but like Jesus asked them to, to change and to, to love. Here, uh, they're doing, they're believing right, maybe, uh, but they also let someone convince them that they can continue to call themselves Christians and to be faithful and to participate in all of the economic and political and idol worship around them. Last week, we, we talked about the trade guilds that would have been in these cities, and they were really important trade guilds, right? The, the church in Smyrna, uh, one of the things they stopped doing was participating in these trade guilds, and without your participation in those, you really couldn't do business. You couldn't have a thriving uh, a business where you were able to provide for yourself or, or even to move up socially within the community. And they would have these guild meetings, and these guild meetings often included... A worship to the patron god of whatever trade they were. Uh, and, and there was also um, some significant laxity in their sexual morals as well. And, and so, like these, these meetings, they would have a little bit of worship. Maybe they would engage in a little bit of food. And then it got wild. I don't know that for sure, but that's what they tell me in, in the commentaries. Like the, it was just anything goes. And and so um, eating meat that maybe had been sacrificed to the idol, and and uh, doing this fornication thing, and and Balaam, and maybe it says the Nicolaitans, right? We get uh, uh, we get a couple things. Um, Balaam had had led them to believe that participating in those trade guilds, even though if they didn't confess that, like the idol that they were worshiping was really a god. But they were like, this is just the cost of doing business. This is what I have to do to provide for myself and my family. I have to participate in, these, in this idolatry. Because if I don't, I won't eat. Uh, a quote from one of the commentators I read. Unlike the believers in Smyrna, who apparently opted out of such activities and thereby impoverished themselves as a result, many believers in Pergamum wanted to participate, wanted to move up socially, and therefore wanted assurance that their behavior was not problematic. Balaam provided the assurance with his teaching. In other words, he said, yes. Someone comes up to him and is like, hey, beloved teacher, Um, can I go out and do this thing and still call myself a Christian? One of my favorite questions I get like this is, uh, hey, can I not come to church and still call myself a Christian? Questions like that. Can I do X and still call myself a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Uh, can I engage in idol worship? And by the way, we'll talk about this in just a second. We have idol worship today. They're not carved out of wood necessarily, but we'll get there in a second. Uh, he said, yes, you can, you can do all of those things. Your conscience is clear. Go and do what you must do to provide for yourself. What I think, what I think that the people in Pergamum forgot. I think they forgot that God would provide for them in the midst of their sacrifice. Uh, They forgot what the the church in Smyrna had understood. uh, That even if death got them, that, that, that even if they withdrew from practicing all those things where in the trade guilds and they could make a living that God was going to prepare and provide their daily bread. They forgot to pray the Lord's Prayer, especially give us this day our daily bread and mean it. I think they were, they were afraid that God wasn't big enough or strong enough or God didn't care enough to provide for those who seek to be faithful. Uh, that doesn't mean that when we're faithful and we sacrifice for the sake of Christ uh, that, that everything's always going to be hunky-dory. But we said with the church in Smyrna they could believe. They could confess that Jesus Christ was Lord and, and Caesar was not. They could not participate in these things that kept uh, kept them employed in money, they, they, they believed that they could do that because ultimately God wins. That Christ is coming and making all things new. Uh, we'll go forward, verse 17. It rounds out the letter this way. Let anyone who has ears listen with, to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. You guys know what manna is, right? Literally translated, it is, what is it? (laughs) Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, God's people come up out of Egypt, and they go to the Mount Sinai, and they're in the desert, and there's not a whole lot of food, and they start to grumble and complain and say, we should have stayed back in Egypt, where at least... We had food, but you have led us out into the desert to die. You aren't taking care of us. We're spoiled breaths. We want to go back. And so what God does is he, he rains down food from heaven. Each morning they would go out and there would be this stuff on the ground and they would pick it up and it was like, it was like bread for them. And and from them until they got to the promised land, God provided for his people in this kind of way. And so Jesus very, very clearly saying, for those of you who remain faithful, for those of you who, who, who give up participating in this economic and social and I, I, political I, idolatry, for those of you who trust that I will provide for you, I will give you manna. I will give you Bread your daily bread that will sustain you. I will give you a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, this one's totally wild. Yeah, who knows? Most likely, a white stone with a name engraved on it served as a dinner invitation. You would send your servants out, And you would pass out these stones, and it'd have something written on it, and you knew what it meant, and you knew that you were going to go to some of so-and-so's house and have a good meal. And so Jesus is saying, hey, if you are faithful, this is what's going to happen, I'm going to invite you to my table. I I think that means here and now, too, that that God provides for us. But I I think ultimately it taps into that hope that the Smyrnians had that at the end, God is going to provide a table where we all sit and we all eat and rejoice together. It's it's a common image, actually, in, in Israel and in the Old Testament. God's heavenly banquet table where we forget scarcity where we forget the temptation to trust that someone else will provide for us, where we rest fully in the care and the grace and the love of God. All right. I think, I think Jesus' message to Pergamum is, was, of the three we've looked at, is, is probably the more difficult one, Right? Uh, the move from legalism to love isn't that difficult, I don't think. It, it just, it, it takes a different mindset. But I think the, the mood move from not trusting that God will provide you to trusting that God will provide for you in faithfulness is a bit more difficult. Because our stomachs are on the line. Literally and metaphorically. Because the the fear of insecurity, the fear of not having enough food or being able to provide for our families a good education or uh, or good meals or a car to drive to get to where, all that is a very, very real threat, if we will. That, that if we disentangle ourselves from the world enough, or if we take a stand enough for what God is calling us to do that that will be cut off and not be able to provide for our families. I think if we're honest, I think, and maybe open to see it too, we face a lot of these same, these same struggles and temptations. Uh, so one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves, what are the things we insist we must participate in but that are really oriented to serving other gods? What are the things that we insist that we can participate in and still be faithful, but are really oriented towards worshiping other gods? Like I said, we don't have idols made of wood necessarily or stone, but we do have idols. And they throw great festival days, and this one is hard for me, um, because it is. Uh, I think we have idols, and their names are Amazon.com, and its festival day is Black Friday, and we participate in its liturgy, or Walmart, where we we enact this pilgrimage on the day after Thanksgiving, and stand in line to pay homage to ourselves. I think, I think our idols are the Phillies, or the Cardinals, or the Blues, or whatever football team used to be here, or the Chiefs, here we go. And their festival days are opening day. And we flock to the stadium and we stand at times and we sit at times and we worship those who can throw a ball really hard and hit a ball really, really far. What? I think I think those are our idols. And I confess. <laughs> my weakness in both of those areas. Now, I, I don't want you to, to take this and think, I can't do any of those things. Oh, great. You've ruined baseball for me. <laughs> uh, well, the Phillies are doing a pretty good job of doing that for me right now. Anyway, they're <laughs> underachieving. Um, I I think though and I don't know this this is one of the things we have to discern together because it's hard. I think there's idol worship all around us and we want to say that we follow Jesus and we want to be faithful but we but I'm I'm going to give my soul to consumerism at the deepest levels or I'm I'm going to give my soul to whatever. Uh, We were talking about this in Bible study, uh, about some things that happened at the the conference we were at yesterday, too, um, that some people just want to date Jesus. They don't want to be married to Jesus. Can we use that kind of metaphor? And so someone pointed out that that's really like having friends with benefits. If you don't know what that means, yeah, well, maybe you don't. I don't know. Come talk to me. We'll explain it. That you have all of the fun with none of the responsibility or commitment. I, I don't know what this means for us. I think part of the answer, uh, part of the answer to learning how to trust that God will provide our daily bread, even if we don't participate in the idol worship of our day, is generosity. Generosity. That we, we participate in our world and, and we make good money. But we understand that it is a gift from God to be held loosely and lightly. And that God may have so blessed you so that you may bless other folks who have been less, less fortunate. I think it's generosity with our, our time. Maybe generosity with our judgment, generosity with our love, generosity with our forgiveness. Uh, The question that I want us to ask ourselves, two of them maybe, uh, do we seek? Do we seek out teachers that allow us to continue to serving, continue in serving other gods while still claiming to be faithful followers of Christ? And what parts of society do we participate in that challenge our faithfulness to Jesus Christ, to where we want to have our cake and eat it too? Living in our world is not black and white. And discerning how best to do that, how to trust God for our daily bread, that's ah, tough. I think we can pray this last part of the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For at the end of the day, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And what seeks to steal you away from God is nothing but a mere shadow, an impersonation of the power and the glory of the one who created us.
0: Thank you for listening to our Sunday morning worship service. For more information about the Heartland Church of the Nazarene, please visit heartlandnaz.org.